This is Geeks and Jacks. Welcome back to Geeks and Jocks, episode 106, recording March 15th, 2022. This is Ryan Sullivan. Hope you listeners are enjoying this late part of winter. We are not too far away from spring. We already came off of Sunday with the daylight savings earlier this year, what my take on it. Uh, anyway, this podcast is on Anchor.fm. You can also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So head on down to those places, search for Geeks and Jacks. Plenty of content awaits. So, going to be probably a basic episode, talk a couple things of gaming, film, and sports. Uh, TV, including uh, the amount of Walking Dead spinoffs that are coming about, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, Game Collection, uh, Batman doing well again in its second weekend, and plenty of sports stuff. So, why not delve into gaming first and uh, talk about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? So there is plans for a new game. It's been around for a good year or two, give or take, of the new title, Shredder's Revenge. As far as I know, it is going to be for the Nintendo Switch and for PC. I do think at some point it will be on the PlayStation and Xbox line of... uh, of systems. Now, to kind of bring back some of the old school, because it is looks like to be a old school beat 'em up type of game. Uh, there's plans to have a collection of games based on all the titles that were made by Konami from 1989 through 1993. So, what do you get out of this package, as announced by uh, Konami on their website? It's called the Cowabunga Collection, and it's got, like I said, 13 games. It's got both arcade games, the original from 89 and its sequel, Turtles in Time. Four NES games, the original game, which was a side-scrolling action game. Turtles 2, the arcade game, which is the port of the 89 game. Turtles 3, the Manhattan Project, exclusive to the NES. And Tournament Fighters, probably one of the hardest games to find for the NES. Came out around the late end of 1993, early 94. So you got six games there. It has the Game Boy line. Uh, Fall of the Foot Clan, Back from the Sewers, and Radical Rescue. Radical Rescue, kind of like a side-scrolling action game, kind of similar to the original NES game. Uh, but the other two are beat-em-ups, and yeah, 
And then you get to the 16-bit era for Super Nintendo, the Turtles in Time port, and Tournament Fighters, which was different from the NES version. And it was nice to see them actually bring the Sega Genesis games on to this collection too. Hyperstone Heist, which was its own original game, but gameplay similar to Turtles in Time and Tournament Fighters, which completely different from the NES and Super NES versions of the uh, game. My experience with these games is mostly relegated to the NES games, with some exception to the Super NES, as far as playing them on the actual hardware. Uh, the the first game on NES is not a bad game. It maybe gets a little too much hate, though the difficulty is no joke. It is probably one of the hardest games you'll ever play. And it's mostly the last two levels that make it such a headache. Uh, not a bad game. I like that it's not a cookie-cutter game for the most part. Uh Great music, graphics that feel kind of like a comic book a little bit. And to be honest, I'm not a nostalgic guy for the 80s cartoon that came out, so I don't have this vendetta of, oh, they didn't include people from the 87 cartoon all the way. Um, I just think it, it, it stands out and it's... There's a reason why it was one of the best sellers for the NES. Uh, the arcade port, uh, pretty good game. I, I I hold it a lot more as a as a great game for the hardware. If it was on Super NES or Genesis, I think it probably could have been somewhat close. Maybe not all the way in graphics, but it probably could have played closer to it. Uh, but added content, uh, the controls were pretty good, great music. Uh, probably my favorite of that original bunch of NES games. Manhattan Project, I think, was so close to being perfect. If it wasn't for the health pickup part, I would put it as probably the best Turtles game. But as it stands, it's still a phenomenal title. I'm just more partial to 2, even if some parts of 3 are superior. Uh, Tournament Fighters, I have played on emulation. I don't think it's that bad. It looks nice for being in a, a very late title. Can't really comment much on the music, though. Turtles in Time, I have played, and I do own the game. I think it's a good port... Actually, before I put my thoughts into that, um, the arcade games, the only one I really played was the original, and I don't think I got too far into it, uh, but still, it it was a commendable title for what it was doing in the arcade, but back to Turtles in Time on Super NES. It's a good game, I just think it's very overrated. Maybe it's just me. I'm more partial to something such like a Final Fight or Streets of Rage. Especially Streets of Rage 2. I think Sonic Blastman 2 is better than Turtles in Time as well. Doesn't mean I hate the game by any stretch, but yeah. 
Uh, tournament fighters, I have played. Uh, I've only played it like once or twice, and from what I played, it, it was good. I was able to win a couple matches. And this was around the time, about 10 years ago, I played that, played uh, the Power Ranger fighting game. I had no experiences playing these games because I didn't play a Super NES fully until 2005. Uh, not my first experience with Super Nintendo at that time, but you know, being fully into the system the last 16 years or so, it, you know, to play some of these titles that you wouldn't have thought otherwise. Uh, the Genesis games, I've only played via emulation. Same thing with Radical Rescue on Game Boy. So I can't comment too much else. Um, this is nice to have before I get close to finishing up this uh, point of the podcast, <laughs> even though it's the beginning of it. I think this is pretty cool because uh, the licensed games, they don't get re-releases for a reason, and it's rather complicated when it's with multiple developers, publishers, and rights holders. And I think I think the love that the early Turtles gets does get a little overblown. And I th- look at the 87 cartoon as kind of an overrated piece of crap. While I do understand its importance, it definitely hasn't aged well. <laughs> Looking at some of the episodes, it... I don't know what the right word to put into this conversation of this podcast, but it just feels like it focused too much on catchphrases and gags and all that. Which, I mean, you kind of need it a little bit for kids, but maybe maxed out to 10. But regardless, um, to see the kind of love that it that it gets. I mean, there is a love for for the old school and the Konami collections that have been out the last few years. The Contra one, the Castlevania one, the Shooters one. I mean, it's really nice to see some of these old compilations or some of these old games get the attention they deserve, whether it's a Gradius or a Contra hardcore in some of these other titles. Sure, you see your usual suspects such as Resident Evil or Pac-Man or even my personal favorite game ever, Doom. Uh, To see some of these other titles get the treatment or to see, hey, Toe Jam and Earl make it onto Sega Genesis Classics for PS4, Xbox One, Switch or Virtua Racing on the Switch. Now that I think about it, you know how nice it is to see a game like Virtual Racing on the Switch? It'd be nice to see it on other systems, too. But but it's nice to see, well after 1995, that the game get gets, uh, gets its proper due due to being on limited hardware of the Sega Genesis, Saturn, and 32X. Though, though they're not hated games, it's just put on systems that were right around or just past their prime or just struggled to find a footing in the world. Definitely one of the 
titles that I'm excited about. Turtles, uh, Cowabunga Collection, uh, both PlayStation systems, the Xbox line of systems, the Switch, and computers. $40 it's going to be. That's really good value, all things considered, and probably to compensate for the license as well. Kind of curious to see if GoldenEye comes out uh, at some point uh, this year. Uh, see if uh, GoldenEye gets a chance on the 64 uh, online pack and the remaster on the Xbox Series. Actually, you know, I'd like to see that on Xbox One. I mean, give give Xbox give people that still have an Xbox One the chance to buy it. So, moving on. Definitely a lot of sports stuff going on. Particularly in terms of baseball and football. So, one of the big things is some of the quarterback situations going on. And that includes Tom Brady on retiring. So, yeah. This is this is going to be like the Brett Favre type of stuff. I remember <laughs> like when Brett Favre was co- contemplating about retiring and all that and he ke- kept coming back for like 2-3 years. It's what are you doing at this point? And so Brady coming back to uh Tampa. So that will that will uh, help the Buccaneers a little bit. And maybe they get a QB that will get groomed up to take over at some point. But one of the big uh, question marks that will happen could be what happens with Deshaun Watson. So before I before I take a look at that situation... Brady stats for 2021, he actually improved on his stats quite a bit. Uh, 5,300 yards, 43 touchdowns. So he had a increase of almost 700 yards passing and three more touchdowns. 12 interceptions, which I don't know, that, that's pretty good, I guess, not throwing as many picks. The funny thing is his QB rating is 102.1 for 2021, just one below uh, what he had uh, in 2020. There was a lot of questions into whether or not uh, Deshaun Watson could have gone to uh, Tampa Bay, but he got acquitted of his uh, sexual assault things that happened. And the big question is whether or not he goes to Carolina or New Orleans. I have a feeling Carolina's going to want him. He might be that type of guy that could get the Panthers over over the line of mediocrity. Something that has been an issue over the last few years. Whether they start off really well and then struggle, or they just have a bad team in general, I think Carolina could be the team to beat. And honestly, Jameis Winston, if he's even ready for this upcoming season for New Orleans, if he's still there, I don't know. It 
it's kind of hard to gauge what I think the situation is. But just because he got acquitted of of charges, that does not mean he is free from everything. And actually, there was a question on NBC Sports. He rejected the Eagles, which, when you think about that situation, uh, their big receiver is what? Devontae Smith. Even though he's a young guy, he'll be entering his second year this fall. They don't really have anybody. It's Smith and Dallas Goddard. I mean, Jalen Rager has been a complete bust. And some of their other guys just aren't up the snuff. And their running backs, I mean, if you throw the ball to Miles Sanders like he did his rookie year in 2019, I mean, there's got to be some uptick value. But I think it also comes down to uh, Jalen Hurts probably being the starter for one more year and then see what happens uh, in Philadelphia. But I don't think the situation would be all that good for Watson if he were there. But this, this type of situation, no matter what, with all the assault stuff and all that... This will shadow Watson's career and for the rest of his life. Even if even if he was found not guilty on everything, it will shadow over him. Because it's the type of situation where you see these type of things and it inclines more people probably to not report stuff such as this and I don't know, it's it's one of those things that I look at and I feel like the people that get hurt are the people that you don't see in the papers all the time. You don't hear on the radio or on television. You know, the actual victims that that are just a statistic, unfortunately. Or whatever the case... Um, I would think Carolina would be a good spot for for Deshaun Watson. The Indianapolis Colts got rid of Carson Wentz. He is now a Washington commander. So that definitely brings some big value to Washington's quarterback situation. The way a lot of people hyped up Taylor Heineke at points throughout the season... The guy's just a mediocre player. There might be some cool stuff he did throughout the year uh, this past season, but I think he's just going to be a backup QB for the rest of his life. I, I don't know. Maybe some some guy will be desperate to to take him. You know, now just think about it with uh, the Eagles. How about Garner Minshew to uh, Indianapolis? I think that'd be cool to see. Minshew is a good player. I just think he needs to show the rest of the league that he is still a viable player. He can still throw with the best. That's at least how I look at it. But 
I'm I'm kind of surprised at the same time of Wentz being let go in uh, Indianapolis. Well, at least traded to Washington, to be exact. Wentz, I don't think, was the reason, the sole reason why the Colts didn't make the playoffs. I personally think the defense is very overrated. I don't think it's anywhere as good as people made it out to be. And when you start the season one and four, I mean, you leave yourself in a deep hole. And they, this is something that I think at the end of the year, I didn't know about this, uh, that they haven't won in Jacksonville in now eight seasons, going back to the 2014 season. It's sort of like what happens with New England when they go to Miami. Something about those stadiums, something about these places, some sort of like kryptonite or weakness that occurs when they go to these to these places. Something just rubs the wrong way and New England loses in Miami. And really the last three, four years, they've 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 struggled in ways to stay on the winning side in Miami, especially with that big big play at the end of the 2018 game. It just showing their worth at the end of the years. Just maybe that applies to what's happening with the Colts a little bit. But for sure, uh, Washington gets their gets a guy that can if when healthy, be a big playmaker. And actually, his stats were pretty good, all things considered. I believe it was 27 touchdowns and 7 interceptions. I want to look at that for a brief second. Hmm. 35... 100 plus yards, 27 touchdowns, 7 picks. So he cut his interceptions down in half to what he had um, in 2020 in Philadelphia. Upped his touchdowns by 11 and threw over 900 yards more compared to where he was uh, last year. Uh, Compared to where he was in 2020, excuse me. Just want to look at his stats for a brief moment. It's not like he's a bad player by any stretch. And eleven games in 2018, and eleven games, you have to imagine that his stats could have been a lot better uh, if if he wasn't hurt. And actually, that goes back to when he was hurt pretty badly towards the end of the uh, 2017 season. But here comes one of the more interesting trades that occurred. Amari Cooper in a fifth rounder, I believe, going to Cleveland. And just trying to look at the stats. Go to go to ESPN. So basically... 
Cooper and a six-round pick to Cleveland for a 2022 fifth and sixth-round pick. So definitely going to be interesting. And here's why, supposedly, according to sites such as ESPN, money. I believe he was expected to make $20 million this upcoming season and probably the whole salary cap and all that probably would have been over the limit or something like that. Uh, Cooper definitely revitalized himself. He, I think he had a disappointing 2017 when he was with Oakland. And once he came to Dallas, he became such a big favorite for Dak Prescott. I mean, his stats in three and a half years eclipsed what he did in Oakland for three and a half years. That's just... You know you're going to be one-on-one with some of the best uh, corners in the league and so many targets that they have to go after. Whether Right now, whether it's uh, Michael Gallup or C.D. Lamb... Probably C.D. Lamb is going to be their number one guy in uh, Dallas. Along with that tight end, Dalton Schultz. You got the running back of Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, sure, they're going to struggle probably a little bit offensively, but definitely need to work on the defense a little bit. Cleveland gets a big target receiver, especially in the wake of what could possibly happen with Jarvis Landry. Odell Beckham being gone midway through the year. And speaking of him, he's under investigation. Now, he's been the subject of controversy involving LSU. Something to do with firing... Take a look at that for a brief basketball coach fired. It has something to do with Will Wade, some accusations and violations, bribery, recruiting stuff. This is this is like death penalty type stuff for, for college sports. SMU back in the early 80s. Corruption. So there's a lot of stuff in it. Supposedly, it reopened stuff that happened three years ago, two plus years ago, with LSU winning the national championship and Odell Beckham giving money out to the players. I mean, th- I mean, this is big. This is big news. Sixth seed in the tournament. Wow. This is from ESPN. 2019, they won the SEC regular season championship. Will Wade suspended for the conference and tournaments after reports, quote, after reports revealed that a federal wiretap captured him discussing a strong-ass offer for a recruit. Probably money. That kind of stuff hurts hurts programs, especially if it's a program that 
does really, really well. Going back to SMU, they really haven't been the same since the mid-80s. Once they came back, they they were not the same guys that were around in the early 80s when uh, guys such as Eric Dickerson and Craig James were were making them relevant. So, level 1 violations. Some alleged to the basketball program, one to football. Two level 2 allegations. So, it just seems like it's just a bad situation. And there's probably some stuff behind the scenes. You know, there's probably a lot of colleges that do the same stuff. It's just LSU getting caught in the act. And this comes right around this time as the March Madness tournament begins very soon in a couple days. There's always bad things going on in NCAA. And you wonder if things will ever change in terms of corruption and all this other mumbo-jumbo that the average person and maybe even some broadcasters may not know about. At some point, I think the NCAA is going to rebrand at some point. Maybe not now or in 10 years' time, but something's going to happen. I have a feeling something will happen. And it's going to rethink how they do things. Not just for college basketball, but probably for college football and everything in between. I don't know. So NASCAR, as we go to that, Phoenix. And we got a first-time winner, Chase Briscoe. Driving the number 14 car for Stuart Haas Racing. And according to the broadcast, he is. He, he idolized uh, Tony Stewart, who would drive the 14 in the later stages of his career. First win of his career at the, in the Cup Series and the 200th driver in NASCAR, according to the broadcast. That says something because. Thousands upon thousands of drivers, or probably a couple thousand, uh, have driven a car in the Cup Series, and only 200 have won. That's pretty shocking, all things considered. Uh, But still, to get a win, I mean, some of these guys are ripe for talent and they can do whatever they can to get that elusive first win or let it build their career and all that. Uh, Ross Chastain, number two. So that's, I mean, this guy, this guy's got potential. Same with Tyler Reddick, third uh, in, in that race. Ryan Blaney, who was a favorite, finished fourth. Kurt Busch, fifth. Kevin Harvick, six, and I'll talk about that for a second. One of the big records for for NASCAR is 18 top tens at one track. 
And I saw a stat line from NASCAR themselves, 18 at North Wilkesboro for both Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt. Since the 2013 season, Kevin Harvick has made top 10s 18 times now in a row. So he joined some very elusive company, and that says something for a driver that, despite having a very bad 2021, he has been on a warpath over the last four or five years. I mean, 2020, he had a remarkable season. And I believe if he's not at 60 wins, he's pretty close. He's got to be very, very close. I'll look at that in a second. Uh, Kyle Busch, 7th. Joey Logano, 8th. Daniel Suarez, ninth, And Chris Buescher, 10th. So look at some other notables. 11th through 14th, Chase Elliott, Eric Almarola, Denny Hamlin, and Alex Bowman. William Byron, 18th. A.J. Allmendinger, 20th. Although, I think he's just driving part-time. Austin Dillon, 21st. Bob Wallace, 22nd. Brad Keselowski, still disappointing right now at the start of this year. 23rd. Austin Sindrick, 24th. Christopher Bell, 26th. Michael McDowell, 27th. Ricky Stenhouse, 28th. Harrison Burton, 29th. And two big near last place, Kyle Larson, 34th, and Martin Truex Jr., 35th. That should give you a good hint on some of the, Really, some of these new generation drivers and some of these young young guys are leading the pack, and you got some of the old veterans of Kurt and Kyle Busch, Harvick, obviously. Uh, Joey Logano still, maybe maybe not old old but he's he's been in the sport for well over a decade so still young but not too young in the cup series at least that's how I at least that's how I see it though one of the guys that I'm actually curious about is Trevor Bain. So, I mean, he's had some good stuff going on, and he's actually driving pretty well for for the Xfinity Series. He's driving for Joe Gibbs Racing, and he had a race back at the end of February. He finished third. Uh, Saturday race at Phoenix, he finished fourth. So there might be some good stuff that could potentially bring him back to NASCAR fully. Uh, the problem is, does he have the talent enough, or is it something like the equipment, or maybe just the Cup Series was just too much for him because his only win came in 2011 at the Daytona 500. He's still a young enough guy. He's, what, 31 now? I think there's potential for him to come back at some point. 
I'm not sure when, but I'd assume at some point he'd be ripe to to get himself back with a with a team. Although probably no one wants to deal with him constantly struggling like he did with the Wood Brothers with Roush Racing. Uh, one of these sadder notes. Uh, it's not a sport necessarily, but it definitely feels like it. Uh, wrestling. I'm not a wrestling fan, but it is one of the more sadder things to look at. Uh, Scott Hall, who was part of the WWF slash WWE and WCW, uh, passing away at the age of 63 following complications of a hip surgery being put on life support. And a tweet from uh, Kevin Nash talking about that once his family came around, uh, they would pull the life support off of off of Hall. So definitely pretty sad, but it also tells you kind of the dangers of professional wrestling. Yes, it is scripted, but there's a physical and mental toll put into place with with wrestlers and him at the age of 63. Not too old, but not young either. And this is something that I feel like this has to be addressed. The older some people are, the the complications I feel like gets worse with surgery. One of the big examples that I'll bring up is Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield had heart surgery at the age of 82. And not too long after that, he passed away from complications of it. I actually want to see when exactly he passed away. Because he did have a fruitful life. Age of... 82. But definitely, he was one of those guys that... I feel like, even though he was pretty old, he was he was nearly 60 when Caddyshack came out. It didn't feel like he was there that long in terms of movies and television shows, but he was a comedian for a long time. Uh, what about... That? Now, just think about it. Joan Rivers had like voice vocal box surgery I think she passed away from complications from that although I think that hospital that she was at I think got sued don't quote me on that but I think they got sued for potentially botching it I don't know that was was, what like 10 years ago maybe a little shorter than that but yeah, the the wrestling, it's just... Some of that stuff will look very real and people get hurt. There's times where injuries do happen. And and I'm not talking scripted injuries, like getting cursed by Papa Shango. I'm talking when, they, when a stunt goes wrong or 
it leads to someone getting hurt pretty badly or a stunt that goes wrong and it kills someone, such as Owen Hart. I mean, to still have a fruitful life, though, even at the age of 63, I mean, it's... He accomplished many things with uh, WWE and WCW. One of the big reasons, I guess, why WCW was such a heated thing between them and uh, Monday Night Raw in the mid to late 90s. So finishing up with uh, baseball for the sports, definitely a lot of things going on. One of the one of the big things that I could think of is Nelson Cruz. One year, $15 million according to ESPN, with the Washington Nationals. This guy definitely has been a home run machine over the last, I feel like, I feel like eight, nine years, maybe more. He actually had a pretty good actually had a pretty good 2021. 136 hits. He was an all-star at the age of last year at the age of 40. Uh, 32 home runs total, 86 RBIs. Give him credit where credit's due. I mean, he's doing a lot of damage for these guys. Uh, some of his years in Seattle, Baltimore. Really, I mean, it was Baltimore where he really took off. Not saying he was doing bad in Texas, but take a look at his total stats. Uh, he's near 2,000 hits, and that's, I mean, given, I mean, he's not going to be a Hall of Famer, especially with the steroid allegations as well, but still, something with these people that defy age. It's just something about it that just you can't put your finger on. One of the other big things going on is uh, Josh Donaldson. So he is a New York Yankee now, along with Isaiah or Isaiah uh, Kinner Falefa and Ben. Rorvet, they're all Yankees in exchange for uh, Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela going to Minnesota. Uh, I'm not sure about Donaldson. I'm sure he plays a good third base, but just something about his attitude that I don't know. It just I can't put my finger on it, but he definitely is a vocal guy and pretty hot tempered. There was something I listened to at some point last year about his upbringing and just his hot temper as a high schooler and just bad things happening in his life and I don't know maybe that leads to where he is now I guess even though he does have a partner it's just I there's some good uptick, but I just don't know about his emotions. Kind of, kind of like Bryce Harper in a way. That's just I feel the same way about Harper. I mean, they both have good talent. 
can they keep their emotions in check? But Gary Sanchez being out in New York, um, I'm not surprised at that. He had two pretty... I remember that first year or so, 2016, he was lighting it up. And they considered that a rookie year. And he lit it up a little bit more the next year. Uh, After that, teams figured out how to beat him. They knew how to deal with him. He definitely had his power at times still, but overall, pretty mediocre. And the Yankees have struggled to find a good catcher since Jorge Posada uh, retired following the 2011 season. As hard as that is to believe. The only thing I would say that he's got going for him is his arm. I feel like it's been better over the last couple of years versus where he was in 2018. I feel like the defense will be a reason to see him still play. The question is, how many games will the Twins lose based on Sanchez at the plate? I mean, they're, I mean, he could win a couple games, but Joe Maurer, he is not. And Rochella, obviously, he definitely... Gave people a reason to look at him. He was given a chance by the Yankees. And just the fact that he got revenge on his former team, the Cleveland Indians. Or should I say, the Cleveland Guardians. Stupid name, by the way. Such a stupid name. A grand slam, I believe, against the Indians in the playoffs in 2020. That's pretty good. They gave up on him too quickly, and he developed into a quality player. Uh, but definitely some uptick to to Urshela. I mean, if he can transition to another team and do, do very well like he did with the Yankees, this guy could have a pretty good career. Maybe not somewhere where it gets him to the Hall of Fame, but he'll be remembered for a long time if he, if he has the quality like he did in New York. So the question is on whether the Yankees try to go after Freddie Freeman. There definitely are a couple teams that definitely need a first baseman. And Atlanta getting uh, Matt Olson from Oakland. That definitely will come into play. Definitely a pretty good year altogether for, for Olsen who was with the Athletics for six seasons. Definitely has a big going for him in terms of of home run power. Actually, wow. 59 games in 2017, but he hit 24 home runs. That's actually pretty pretty impressive and for him to get even a rookie of the year honor um, nomination that 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 says something fourth in the rookie of the year nominations gold glove in 2018 played all 162 games that's that's a rare oddity to see but he's managed to crush 
142 home runs in five in five seasons, and he's not too old either. 27 years old. I'm not sure if Freeman costs quite a bit of money or anything for that matter, but someone will definitely be desperate to get a first baseman. Question on whether or not he goes to uh, Toronto. I mean, definitely could use somebody of that, you know. Had himself a pretty good 2021, 300 exactly for his average, 180 hits. Tell you what, that infield could be pretty stacked in Toronto if he goes there. You got, what, Bo Bichette and Vlad Jr. Think about just all that power there. And you have a veteran presence in that locker room. Think about it. To showcase that, hey, this is a champion. Maybe we can learn a thing or two from him. Regardless of where he goes to. But if he is destined for Toronto, they'll definitely get themselves a really good player. And speaking of that, why am I talking all this baseball? Baseball's back. Not too long after... Recording the last episode, uh, baseball found an agreement with each other and with the players' union and the league. They're going to try whatever they can to salvage the season. Whether they get 162 games in or not, that's going to be that's hard to determine. I haven't really followed it too much, but see if they can. Just looking for. So yeah, definitely, we'll get 162 games in. Yeah, I think if you're going to, if I had to put my thought into doing 162 games, as much as I hate to say it. You might have to have some baseball in November. But I think you have to treat it like a... um, I think you have to treat it like a... Like a Super Bowl, in a way. Kind of like what they did in 2020 with the World Series. Maybe you treat it, take it somewhere... Or take it to some of the dome stadiums. That way there's not... Any rain delays or any of that. Take it to Tampa. No, you know what? <laughs> now I think about it. No. Take it to both Texas stadiums. Arizona. I'm trying to think of other dome stadiums. and Let's see. Toronto has the Sky Dome, but I can't imagine the league going with that. Uh... Chicago don't have any. Detroit, no. Cleveland, Kansas, nope. Atlanta, well, Miami. 
Although I'm not sure many people would go to a World Series game, but worth a try. <laughs> and the last thing that I'll bring up for sports is is LeBron James joining six other players for 10,000 assists not too long ago and he according to ESPN the first guy to have at least 10,000 points 10,000 rebounds and 10,000 assists regardless of how you feel about him I think he's a piece of crap this is still a pretty good statistic when you but given the fact that he he's played for 19 seasons and that's including this year He'll be entering his 20th this fall. And this comes at a point where the L.A. Lakers are crumbling so badly. It probably is a welcoming sign for a lot of people who want to see the Lakers crumble, to see James crumble, just because of all the stuff they try to do, the whole super team crap that's been around for a long time and comeuppance, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Moving on. uh, AMC is going to do whatever they can to milk the, the walking dead until the cow is basically ultra thin. So The Walking Dead next year will turn 20 as a comic book series. And the show started in 2010 and I believe is going to end this year. And has one spinoff that is still going, Fear the Walking Dead. Been on for about seven years, eight years. One of the things they're trying to do is create two spinoffs. One at least slated to come out next year. Actually, I wonder if both of them are actually going to come about. Now that I think about it. Um, another Walking, Walking Dead spinoff. And this was not too long ago announcing one for AMC Plus called Isle of the Dead. And it is going to be a focus on two characters of the show, uh, Negan and Maggie. Negan played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Maggie played by, I don't know how you got to figure out how to say her, Lauren Cohen. I, I thought she had like a complicated last name. Uh, going to Manhattan. And the other one is one with Norman Reedus and Melissa McBride playing the characters Daryl and Carol. I guess this was announced uh, about a month ago. Actually, it might be longer than that now I think about it. Tales of the Walking Dead. So that 
my question on all this is why make these spinoffs right now? I think the best time to have made these spinoffs would have been right around 2014 through 17, maybe 18. And why I say that is because The Walking Dead was one of the big ratings grabbers for a good four, maybe five year span. And once they started losing characters, and I'm saying this is someone that's not a Walking Dead guy. I like the video games from Telltale, but other than that, don't really care much for The Walking Dead. But I look at it from a TV standpoint, why didn't they try doing these spinoffs sooner and not when the show was on its last legs? It's like having Spongebob have his two spinoffs right around the last year or two, long after the show really hit its peak. I mean, the show's still relevant, but maybe not to the level where it was even ten years ago. That's how I feel with these Walking Dead spinoffs. It's Sure, these are popular guys, but the point is, can you deal with just these characters and not the entire group? I feel like that that group of The Walking Dead is why you stick to that show. And honestly, even with the... Uh, I think I read something via... Let me look at the... Um, this was from Polygon with the Isle of the Dead. So I'm on the line of yeah, Andrew Lincoln who played Rick in the show up through two years ago. Plans to do a few movies. See, wow, that was that was a little over three years ago when you finished up doing the show. Wow. The question is, when are they going to do the movies, or when will they come out? But losing your lead guy, I mean, that's you find yourself in a situation like ER or something where your lead guys and and gals they they leave in a three to four year span long after the show was like number one in ratings it's hard to go back to it or it's hard to see like a changing shift of characters every year as you watch some of these long running TV shows one of the things that actually leaves me curious is I wonder how the ratings are for something such as NCIS uh, following Mark Harmon not being on the show as a with his character. I think he's still involved, but his character's got to be like one of the lifebloods of that show. And nothing against Gary Cole, but when I think of Gary Cole, I think Office Space, Talladega Nights, 
Dodgeball, Pineapple Express. I'm trying to think of how many shows have had the most spinoffs, and the the only one I could really think that had that many spinoffs was uh, Happy Days. Happy Days had what was it, Laverne and Shirley, and uh, Mork and Mindy actually as well. Uh, Joni loves Chachi. trying to think of other spinoffs that had that many spinoffs. Well, any shows that had that many spinoffs. I know there's a couple MASH ones. There are probably some ones for some of the sketch comedy shows of the 60s and 70s. That's crazy. Probably Happy Days with, with three. And that probably, now that I think about it, with the there was like another spinoff I saw that only had a few episodes for The Walking Dead. I think so it was like four four spinoffs. That is crazy. I mean, expand the universe, but it also comes off as a bit lazy. Like you can't come up with anything original. That's why some people have issues with TV not being as original as it used to be. And lastly, uh, going to movies. Actually, you know, take that back for a minute. The only big thing I could think of is, for TV, one last thing is, I guess a couple weeks ago, uh, with sports, a little bit with ESPN, they're still trying to find their Monday night footing. And that comes with uh, signing Troy Aikman away from uh, Fox to be the color guy for Monday Night Football. I think he gets paid $18 million, which is... Which is quite a bit of money. Actually, that's something I want to look just for a brief second... Alright, um, where we go? Color commentary. Color common. Color commentator salary. I mean, this is getting crazier and crazier with each passing year. Uh, Tony Romo, a couple of years ago got a deal to where he gets paid 17 million a year like it like it is crazy just but they need someone at ESPN to uh, but the thing is I like Lewis Riddick I like uh, Brian Grease I think they do pretty well I'm not sure how I feel about Steve Levy I don't think he's a bad broadcaster, but he's no Sean McDonough. He's no Mike Tirico. I think his I think he's better suited for the college football environment. But even then, he can still be a little annoying. So now, get to the movies. The Batman number one, according to Box Office Mojo. That. Definitely says it all. I mean, it had a 
pretty good second weekend, making just over $66 million, and its total is $239 million domestically and $226 million internationally. Worldwide, $465 million. So this movie is definitely going to be staying for a couple more weeks in the top five in theaters. So I don't think these wide releases of UMA, UMMA, and X are going to do really well. So, I mean, people, like, you know, it's it's similar to Spider-Man. People want, people like their Batman fix. And to have a lone Batman flick, hey, pretty cool to have. Pretty cool to have back. But, yeah. Um, go to number two. Um, no other movie made double-digit millions, but the closest one is uh, Uncharted. So Uncharted enjoyed another decent weekend, number two spot for the weekend. A little over nine million, and its total now is just over three hundred million. And altogether, 113 million domestically and a little over 187 mil internationally. People enjoy Uncharted. They still enjoy what Uncharted's doing. Uh, So this... Okay. BTS, Permission to Dance on Stage, Soul Live Viewing. Okay, that's... Okay, BTS permission permission to dance movie. So I'm um, is this some sort of thing that's supposed to be in theaters for a while? Hmm. Pop group one night only event. More money in a single day. Is it? Did this only come out one day? If so, that is... That is extremely impressive. That is... That is extremely impressive. No joke. $6.8 million Saturday the uh, 12th. That is crazy. And it made 25 plus million internationally. The total worldwide, $32,600,000. Most studios would envy that type of stuff. And this ain't a new thing either. You got some of these places and theaters that house special live event stuff. That is crazy. That is ultimately crazy. Seriously. Uh, number four, uh, Dog. Still holding on pretty well. And a little over five million. It's up to 47 million. More than likely, uh, probably make about 55 million by the time it's finished. Going by the numbers, it's still a feel good story story and a feel-good movie, you know, the bond between uh, 
an army ranger and an army ranger dog. You know, that's means something for people. Spider-Man still doing well in the theater. Actually, I'm going to take a look at that for a minute just for just for a brief second. So the numbers still declining a little bit, but it's still doing decently. About a little over four four million over the weekend. So it's nearing its way to eight hundred million here in the United States. Seven ninety two right now. Um I can't really guess if it makes it to eight hundred million. I mean, but Spider Man still has some legs. It's just a matter of which theaters are still willing to have it in the theater. That's all I'm going to say with that. So let's see what else is doing in the theater for the top ten. Uh, Death on the Nile making a little over 2.4 million. It made it to 40 million total here in the states. 1.8 million for Raid Shyam. A romantic drama set in Europe during the 70s. How many theaters for that? Because that's got to be like a small release. 800 theaters. Is that, would you call that like a limited release? To where it expands in theaters? Somebody explain that to me. Because I see the Serrano film, that Peter Dinklage film. Still in 700, close to 700 theaters and only made 398,000. Uh, but yeah, finish up the top ten. Uh, Sing two, one point six uh, million in eighth place. Made its way to one hundred fifty-five million. Jackass Forever at nine, just barely made it to a million and fifty-six million total. Scream topped topped out at number ten, just over four hundred sixty thousand dollars. So probably will make. 81, 82 million by the time it gets pulled out of theaters. So not many other stuff going on. Let's see what else is. Because uh, Warner Brothers is definitely trying to do whatever they can with some of their big movies that are coming out. Definitely a lot of movies are either getting pushed back or. pushback or being pushed forward to an earlier date. One of the big examples being uh, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, I think. It, yeah, Fury of the Gods. That's coming out Christmas time now compared to June of 2023. Um, but Wonka, Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, and The Flash all getting pushed back uh, to future dates, uh, Wonka from March 2023 to Christmas time 2023, Christmas time 2022 to March 2023 for uh, Aquaman. So they're basically 
replacing one film with another film of these of these bunch. So so Wonka is now replaced with Aquaman in March of 2023. Uh, the Flash, not necessarily being replaced, but right around June of 2023, with Shazam coming out Christmas time. Actually, Shazam replacing Aquaman, too. Maybe there's like a strategic that Warner Brothers has that many don't know about, or what? <laughs> But as of right now, I mean, they're going to enjoy this while it lasts with the Batman. Because I'm not seeing really anything that will keep it from doing well. Uh, Like I said, it's got a a couple wide releases, horror films that I know they'll do well, but are they really going to surpass Batman? I don't know. Lost City comes out next week. The Channing Tatum, Sandra Bullock film. I, depending on how it's reviewed, maybe it gives Batman a run for its money uh, next week. But that's hard to gauge. And a seven days film that comes out nationwide... Looks like a small, almost looks like a small independent film, but it hasn't come out internationally. A film about COVID being forced to shelter, two people forced to shelter together. That's certainly going to date it a little bit, but maybe there's something unique to it, or I don't know. Whatever the case, uh, Batman shouldn't have to worry about anyone taking over number one. I would, I would not think those those two horror films should do well, well, or at least make it to the level of of what the Batman is doing. So with that, wrap this episode up. As I said before, this podcast is on Anchor.fm. You can also find us on Spotify, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. So head on down to those places, search for Geeks and Jocks. Plenty of content awaits you. So with that, episode 106, this is Ryan Sullivan. Hope to hear your listeners on the next podcast. Stay safe, stay protected, take care of yourself, take care, everyone.